Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. And I'm getting right into it, Duanna. I have a bone to pick with you. Wait a minute. You didn't even ask how I am. Nope. How's my life? Nope. Because you told me that we were going to have a fight. So I'm spoiling for a fight. That's how I am. I was already yelling at you over text message yesterday. Okay. So I haven't been feeling well. I was like, not to sound dramatic, but I was on rest all weekend. Perfect time to binge. I binged like an amazing teen drama from Spain. Yeah. You were basically prescribed Netflix. No chill. Correct. And so I binged Delete. Then I had withdrawal after I finished Delete. So I was like, okay, fine. Finally, I'm going to make Duanna happy. I'm going to watch The Americans. How long have you been shitting on me to watch this show? Long time. I mean, time. it was six seasons long, so six seasons, okay, I think. Okay, so yeah. for a long time. So right. I was like, you know what? And here's how she told me on this very podcast that it, this would hook me. Sex. You promised me sex. You promised me sex and costumes and sex. So I'm like, oh, I'm done with my teen drama. I need pervy things because I'm a perv. I need some sex. Yeah. I also said wigs, first of all. Like if we're going to quote me <laughs> improperly, at least put in the good stuff. But your main hook was sex. Yeah. So I'm watching this show and these fucked up people poison an innocent woman's son. Okay. Don't sell the show that way. You knew it was about spies and the KGB and Russia. Did I somehow- I thought it was about spies having sex. Like, when I think about spies, I think James Bond and sex and, like, yeah, there's a seduction. Bit, there's a bit of killing in there, too. There's a whole little bit of, you know, I expect there's you to die. There's also seduction and martinis and seduction. Okay, before we get too far into this rant, how many episodes have you watched right now? Two. Yeah, exactly. How many episodes are there? There's 13 times six seasons or 10 times six seasons. You're going to get there, and there's plenty of sex, as all the listeners who know can point out, and there's intrigue, and there's drama, and there's a lot of wigs and costumes. No, no, no. We were talking about sex. Fraud. Yeah. Fraud. You are a fraud. You fraudulently. I'm, okay. No, no, no. I'm fraudulently. Excuse me. I'm not sure if this is in my contract to sit here and be maligned. You can't watch two episodes and say that there's no sex. There's enough sex. If you are listening to this podcast right now, are you on the highway? I don't care. Please pull over, tweet or Instagram at Elaine Louis to tell her that she's wrong. There's going to be more than plenty, but I didn't say it was going to come like a via Gilmore Girls. Yeah, there's some angst to go with it. He has sex with some weird blonde woman who thinks he's like a Swedish operative. Like, I'm, you know, this is very dark, Duanna. It's, it's called honey trapping and it's awesome. It's very dark. There are a lot of people being poisoned and like they're crazy. These two are nuts. And then some like FBI moves across the street. It's very stressful. Not the kind of sex I had in mind. Listen, I don't know about your life and your sex, but here's the thing. Often the best sex comes during tension. So the more dramatic and difficult it gets, 
the better and hotter the situation. Can you please wait for it? One bajillion people cannot be wrong, including many people that we know and love. Kathleen Ugh. loves the show. Dan loves the show. Everybody is having sex. nightmares together. I mean, at that point, <laughs> I have to send you to like a different digital destination. Anyway, public service announcement for those of you out there. If you haven't started watching The Americans yet, it is a very good show. It is very tense. There's a lot of tension. There is a lot of intrigue. It is low on the kind of sex I was looking for. Excuse Remember, me, you watched 3% of the whole series I wanted at this point. Teeny bopper, fucking teen drama sex. I never, ever promised you a high school drama. Meanwhile, I'm mad at you also because I was welcomed into our studio, otherwise known as your house, and, and told here, you can have one chip. Because I only have one package of these and they're very special to me. They're really good chips. Uh, I know. They're like, I don't want to tell people what kind of chips they are because, listen, certain North Americans have a very limited palate and they feel they, you know, they hear certain words and then they're like, no, I can't have that. But that's all the more reason because this, if you think people are going to be turned off by it, then nobody's going to buy out your stock. I thought they were spectacular. It's like, it's a, Fish skin ducked in egg? Is that the idea? It's a salty egg chip in fish skin something. It came from Malaysia. Only one bag arrived for me from Malaysia, from my aunt. You can't find it here. That's why I'm only offering you one chip. I only offered myself one chip, and then I put it away because I have to ration. You know, I was really surprised because I I don't have a ton of experience with this, but it approximated a pork rind, I think. I was in like the bulk food store the other day and I saw like natural organic high protein pork rinds. I was like, is this how we're selling these now? Um, I appreciate that this is where we're going with our food centric. I don't know what, but uh, yeah, the pork rinds, which once were a punchline are now a health food, a high protein snack. And I feel like these are an extension of that. Yes. If you are in Malaysia, if you are listening to our podcast in Malaysia, or if you plan to go to Malaysia, please find a box. If you can find a box, find me. I will arrange to have the box shipped to my home. Because, yeah, again, only got one bag. Okay, well, if you need to pause the podcast and go to the bathroom or anything, I definitely won't go up in the cabinet and get another (laughs) chip, a single chip. I'm sorry I had to be so low classy, but I only had one chip too. This is absolutely true. (laughs) Okay, from chips to work. I really liked the first piece that we wanted to talk about today because it is the kind of thing that seems uh, like after a certain point, people don't talk about stuff. I don't brag about the fact that I tie my shoes every day because like you expect me to know how, right? Yeah. Um, Or, you know, that you drive successfully every day without problems or whatnot. It's something that you expect. So what I loved about the first article that you sent me is it's about acting and acting choices, Mm -hmm. and you would expect that an Academy Award winner Mm -hmm. would kind of know how to act, and you don't need to raise the questions of whether they do or not. But this uh, kind of comes in at a left turn from that. Well, and before we even get to who the subject is about, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit because... Lately in pop culture and in acting and in directing, the big story that we've been talking about is 
Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, a star is born. He wiped off her makeup. He, like, coached this amazing performance out of her. Everybody's, like, fucking jizzing all over See, it. See, I don't like that, though. I don't like he coached this amazing performance out of her. Like, that's how it's being sold. You I know, know but that's bullshit. Um, sure. And the reason it's bullshit is there has always been kind of this narrative, which I guess is what you're talking about, that the the idea that a director is this magician slash musician who can coax the beautiful sound out of the unwoken instrument and it's kind of bullshit and it takes away often actresses' power. You don't hear actors talking like this. Oh, the director just brought this out of me and he found yeah. it in me. Um, so it's bullshit. And I appreciate that, you know, that this is the narrative about Bradley Cooper, but now I'm annoyed again. Well, and and to be fair, Lady Gaga is contributing to this narrative, right? I mean, these are the things that she's saying, that what he brought out of her, like what kind of performance she always knew she had in her and – it was their collaboration. Anyway, this story is about a different kind of director-actor collaboration. And what we're talking about, as you mentioning, is Joel Edgerton directed a film called Boy Erased, and his star was the acclaimed the Nicole Kidman. Right. So did you read the book? No. It is a nonfiction memoir uh, in which uh, the main character, who's played by Lucas Hedges in the movie, is taken to uh, uh, deprogramming is the idea that he is gay, that his family is staunchly... Gay conversion therapy, right? Gay conversion therapy. His family are religious and staunchly against this. And the mother is a sympathetic character in the book to a certain extent, but not a huge presence. So I'm already interested in this movie because for Nicole Kidman to sign on to this, it has to be a huge substantial role with something to it, unless it's playing Aquaman's mom. (laughs) That's right. And so for Joel Edgerton, also an actor, now a director, he's directing like one of the best, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, she's been around for, what, 25 years or more as a known excellent quantity. Uh, she's, She's the real deal. Like, yeah, one of the best. Absolutely. So he is promoting the film. He's Uh, asked by an Australian outlet what it was like working with Nicole, and this is what he says. On a work level, everything that Nicole does is worth putting in the movie. I remember one day thinking, Nicole probably thinks I'm terrible because I don't say anything to her. And so I said to her, I just want you to know that if I'm not saying anything to you in between takes, it's just because you always do hit the center of the dartboard. I don't want you to think that I don't have anything to say to you. And she said, no, You should tell me things still. I want people to direct me. And so he says, concludes, it said a lot about demystifying Hollywood movie stars, like they've got it covered and you shouldn't direct them. So then I found myself throwing Nicole these cryptic directions. And he goes on to talk about how with her input and feedback, he was able to adjust the way he directed her for the film that he was directing. Right. And there's layers upon layers here. And you can't keep me happy on some level because I complained about the narrative of Bradley Cooper and and Lady Gaga and he found this in her, which I guess speaks to that kind of a, you know, a wannabe old school movie. And I also take umbrage initially at the idea that, yeah, that Joel Edgerton was not telling her anything because how frustrating is that? To be clear, there are varying types of 
directors. Some really want to talk to the actors on the day all the time. They're adjusting things in the in every shot, every time they call cut. Some are much more concerned with, you know, fix the lighting, fix the shot, fix the whatever, and actors just, just keep doing what you're doing. But imagine showing up to something, especially something that is as emotionally fraught as a movie like this is going to be, and being told nothing. Like, just doing your thing and essentially doing it into a void. Mm-hmm. How hard would that be? And also… Not just hard, but how realistic. Like, there's only one Martin Scorsese. And there's only one whatever acclaimed director list that you want to list off. Great. But for everybody else, most of the people who are going to be directing are not always going to be directing their exact peers, directing to acting. Do you know what I mean? Like, somebody somewhere is going to find themselves in a place where, hey, I am going to be directing the equivalent of Nicole Kidman to me. You mean because she's so much more decorated than him? Sure. Like you're suggesting that he maybe felt intimidated, like there's nothing I can say to her? Sure. That's really interesting. That's what he was saying. He was like, she's so good. She was perfect. Right. So what could I possibly add? Well, then what are you saying about your role on the set? Right. But that in itself is interesting because he didn't use those words. He didn't say which you might say if it was, I don't know, a Clooney or a somebody, God, I was intimidated directing Nicole Kidman. God, she's an Academy Award winner. It's not, it's dancing around kind of the idea that you articulated very clearly just now, which is who am I to say anything to an Academy Award winner, which is really interesting. Well, and I also find it's interesting when actors do this. Like, by no means am I saying that actors shouldn't direct. But the thing is, is that what he's saying here too is as an actor, he was watching her and he was saying, well, shit, every decision she made, every expression, every line delivery is the one I would have made or probably the one I should have made. Right. Were he in her. That's right. Sure. As an actor. Right. But that wasn't his job. I'm, how do you mean? Well, his job on this film was not to be an actor. His job on the film was to be a director. Right. So when he's watching her from the perspective of an actor saying, oh, those are great choices that she's making. I would have made those. Were I acting that part? But he's not acting that part. See, it's really interesting that you say that. I didn't read it that way. I didn't read it as him watching her as an actor But that as a director, you have a million problems and a million things going on. And maybe there is an actor that you need to talk to. Um, So you're worried about that person and the fucking lighting again and the whole thing. And just going, she's great. We'll leave her alone. But that is, it's almost the folly of being good or, you know, just to get into the metaphor. It's a little bit about being the good girl. Do you know what I mean? That when we know that even when kids are young, like noisy kids, often boys, people who need more attention, even if it's negative attention, get more attention. And the person who's doing a good job quietly well gets very little. There's very little praise for, hey, you're doing great. Please keep doing that. It's often just like, yeah, okay. And arguably, it takes as much intuition and choice and whatever else to be really good as it does to go, hey, you're not quite there. Uh, It's interesting 
to think about it, yeah, from a fellow actor perspective, but also to think of it as someone who, I understand it from the perspective of him going, God, I have a million fires to put out, but it can be like into a void because there's no feedback that you're getting, especially on a film set. You know, nobody laughs if you say something funny because they can't, they'd ruin the take. Nobody cries if you do something wonderful. They're worried about moving the F-stop to the right position. So if you got it, the director says, cut, great, moving on. That's the extent of praise that you can get if things are going well. Literally, moving on is, hey, great job. But I can see how that would be very, very frustrating. And I love that she said to him, and this is where her confidence comes in, no, tell me more stuff. Let's talk about this more. Let's discuss choices to be made because there always are or things I can do or whatever, right? Like, I love hearing, I don't know what you think about this. I love hearing the stories where, you know, people talk about, oh, that moment in that scene was a total improv, but it was amazing, so I kept it. I've been in uh, a community rewatch recently, and I have conflicted feelings about that, but often the scripts would end, Dan Harmon would end scripts by saying, and then Donald Glover says something super funny. Like he was essentially letting him do his thing and often it made it into the show and was amazing. So it's about finding like new things, not simply checking a box that where it's like, yeah, she's great. She's doing great. I'm frustrated on her behalf. I am too. And I'm frustrated by the fact that, you know, Nicole Kidman, as you said, has the confidence to speak up and be like, hey, no, you know, it's not enough. Like I'd like you to challenge me. Um, I don't know that somebody who is not a veteran of the business is able to do that. Like after cut, good job, moving on. Does he or she go up to the director and be like, hey, I know you said we're moving on, but like, you know, <gasps> no. beyond good job, can you talk about that? Can you, go, can you, can you ask for the time? No, you cannot. Okay. So, so is that right? No. So this is the thing. So a bit of like film etiquette. If it's moving on, you are moving on. So directors often talk about, they'll say, uh, oh, I'll give the actors a take after it's all technical just to do whatever they want. And they often will say, okay, you guys, just on this one, just have fun, do whatever you want, whatever that means in the context of the scene. Uh, and, you know, in technically speaking, an actor, any actor, is supposed to speak up and say, hey, can we just try it like a little more tense or a little more movement or whatever it is they want before you move on? Because... That's the ethics of trying to make your day and the timing and all the rest of it and 140 crew members. Uh, you don't get to say, oh, actually, I want to move back. But it can be really hard to raise your voice and say those things. So given that that's the understood environment, like when because 140 people are standing around waiting, because there's a budget, because there's a schedule, because there's a timeline, there clearly then isn't time built into that sheet for feedback. No. I mean, uh, yeah, it's often a scene that is slated for, say, an hour, mm -hmm. goes over by an hour, two hours. If it's not there, it's not happening. And yeah. that happens. There are delays, whatever. Somewhere in the back, there's a line producer scribbling out money yeah. to deal with the fact that we've gone over today. But there's, a, there's definitely a process about how it's going. And often directors will, yeah, visit the trailer in the, during lunch to say, hey, this afternoon, maybe try this. Uh, or maybe this, do that. But again, I think they often do that to deal with problems and mm -hmm. not to deal with things that are going well. You're not in the field, though. Like, I mean, sometimes feedback in the field is what is effective. Right. And 
I agree with you. But again, if it's, if you're, I'm trying to think of like, let's say you're golfing um, and you're kind of doing what you do and it's fine. Um, if somebody's going to keep coming up to you and say, you're doing well, good, keep going. Is that helpful? Is the argument as opposed to, hey, I really like what you're doing. I'm just so proud of the effort that you're putting in. And I really see how you've grown over the past few months as a person. Uh, And if you only have limited time, do you address that to the person who's doing well or the person who is chipping away at something in a sand dune who needs to hear, yeah, you can do it. You can make it. (laughs) Sand dune. I don't know. I'm not sure that is. Sand trap? Where are we going? I'm not sand trap. I'm not sure that is the right sport connection because if… Okay. I mean, give me a sport then. Well, the sport, you would have to… I think a better example or a better relationship to that example would be a team sport. Golf, tennis, these are individual sports, right? Like it's not… Okay, okay, okay. But it's sports. Oh my God. It's sports. It's not just sports because any sport that is a team sport, like basketball, soccer, baseball… There is time built in during the play or during the time of play where you can make adjustments. Yeah, sure. And that I get that part of it and I get that that exists and that does exist on a film set. I don't want to imply that it doesn't. Um, but if you're the guy who is there every time to receive the pass that you then pass to, you know, the the whoever who actually makes the shot, like… Nobody says, hey, good job, so-and-so, continue doing what you're doing because you only have so much time and the clock is always ticking and whatnot. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, in the huddles on Friday Night Lights, you spend that time talking to the quarterback or the running back or whoever it is who's having a real problem that week, uh, not saying to different people, I really like the choices you're making, that's great. It's just a different kind of, it's almost like only negative feedback or constructive feedback exists as opposed to praise. I would, I, and I, I mean, I see, I'm, listen, the sports analogy is probably not going to be the perfect fit because in, especially a team environment, there are, there is room for both, like giving the praise to the people who are doing well, keep doing that, keep running that route, keep pitching him low, keep shooting from that position, that guy can't guard you. That said, it seems like, you know, the way that you reacted when I was like, hey, can you go up to the director after you've shout, like they've cut, like cut, moving on. You were like, no, that like, if that is the reaction, the fear of God, the, oh, I don't want to impose. It seems like in that environment, there may be room to, I don't know, imagine some space for some more communication. Yeah. And look. In all workplaces, really. Oh, absolutely. And look, there is. My point about no is you can't say it after moving on. Moving on means moving on. Immediately after that, you hear a million stands being moved and things changing and an AD is screaming, move it to the next set. But within the context of a film especially, it's the director who says, yes, we have it, we're moving, or no, we don't. The actor can address that. Hey, I'd really like to try this uh, within the context of the scene but they're the ones who keep the trains running. That said, this kind of thing that's happening is not happening on every set. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really interested in the fact that he used the language, everything Nicole does hits the bullseye. Yeah. Because uh, it's language that I've heard from a lot of actors before. And an actor friend of mine once told me about a quote from Elizabeth Moss talking about Jane Campion. She was really nervous about Top of the Lake. 
And Jane Campion said to her in one of their talks, which would have been beforehand, and somewhere Joel Edgerton is listening to us going, we prepped for months before this in their rehearsals and whatever, which I'm sure they did, and it's fine. But Jane Campion said to Elizabeth Moss, don't worry about hitting the bullseye. Just to begin with, just get it on the board, meaning there's going to be feedback built in as part of our process. That's what we're going to work with through the day, through the week, or the shooting time of three months or whatever it turns out to be. So that's a different way of coming at it, like building in the idea that there will be constant feedback and that your first run at it is not going to be perfect, uh, Oscar winner or Emmy winner or not, and that you're going to kind of massage it and find it together. And the point of the anecdote was Elizabeth Moss was like, God, how freeing and exciting Mm -hmm. that I don't have to worry about doing it all right, all at the one time. So I, you know, that's a different take on it. But I do think it comes back to Nicole Kidman only because she's Nicole Kidman being brave enough to say, hey, no, wait a second. Mm -hmm. I still want to hear from you during the day. I still want to hear you say, let's try a thing. And I also, like, who wants to go on a set and be a one take whatever? If you're an actor and you're wealthy and successful at that point, you're not doing it because you're just there for the money. Like, you want to try stuff. You Not wanna... on a small independent film directed by Joel Edgerton that is going to play at film festivals that isn't like, you know, Avengers. No, again, you've right? paid your 17 mortgages by being Aquaman's mom. That's right. Um, so, yeah, you want to try stuff and find stuff and discover yourself in the process of of filming, of shooting the movie. So that's kind of what the goal should be. And, yeah, I think she's entirely correct to want feedback. I think it's a goal for a lot of people, as I said, across industry. I've been reading a lot lately about the fast-pacedness of business these days Mm -hmm. in anything, in distribution, in marketing, in production, and not just in film production, but whatever business… Yeah, making anything, making making any product. And there's just no time. It almost seems as though, like, you wrap, and then, like, five minutes later another goal or another target is set. And nobody has any time to breathe. Like, um, even in the, in, in, even in the reading that I'm doing about, like, listen, Elon Musk is in the news every fucking day. Like, every fucking day he's, he's doing something. He's a whole curiosity. Like, I assume, I hope somebody's going to study his brain at some <laughs> point because I want to know things. Like, anyway, but they were talking about Tesla and timelines that they needed to meet on this, the production of this new vehicle or whatnot. And how those deadlines have been set so aggressively that in the day-to-day work, you know, the small pieces of coding and working and whatever that goes into the making and manufacturing of a car, they actually can't stop and assess, even assess their successes. And to me, that is, if we're talking about show your work, we talk about all the time, like, it's important to analyze our failures so that we can learn how to turn those failures into successes. But it's also really important to fucking analyze a success so that you can replicate it. Oh, absolutely. But I agree with you that, A, it's not part of our culture and mm-hmm. we only spend time addressing problems. I also think that it does have a different context in a workplace where conceivably you're going to make cars until the cows come home, as opposed to uh, a film set. And this is where, again, like don't cry for people in entertainment, but this is one of the ways that things are really different. And we've talked about 
how Me Too and harassment was able to happen because often these are not real workplaces with things like HR and employee reviews set in. And again, she may only have been on set for 13, 14 days. So you either have a working relationship together and you figure out how to do feedback or you don't. And then everybody moves on to the next project in which all the new rules are set again. So I suspect one of the reasons that she said, hey, no, tell me a thing early and often is because you don't have a lot of time to grow into that. You don't have a lot of time for your boss to say, you know what, we don't have time for our one-on-one this week, but we'll do it next month. Um, There is no next month. So it's demanding it in the here and now. What did Elon Musk decide to do about his feedback or lack thereof? Oh, God, it wasn't even about that. They have like other problems that they're dealing with with him. It was just when I was reading about Tesla's aggressive timelines, it made me realize like across the board, everybody is in a fucking rush. And what do you compromise in a rush? And right. we're all there, like all of us. Yeah, absolutely. The blog is there. The site is there. When we're in a rush to get up an article, when people are like, where's the pictures of Brad and Angelina? Whatever. Th- this is what happens. And I guess the other side of that is, ain't no workplace perfect. Nothing is perfect. And you can have goals for things you want to do and time that you want to take to give especially positive feedback or even better, creative, growing feedback. But in the absence of it, what we have to take on and what, you know, Nicole Kidman can take on is being your own assessor, essentially. How did I do? Did I do my best today? Can I push some more? Is there a word or a phrase or something that I can write better, say better, do whatever? It's one of the reasons that people like awards so much because it's, in theory, an objective person saying, hey, you did a good job. But I think, yeah, I think without getting into a whole philosophy of uh, the way the industrial revolution is changing in this era and, you know, everybody's a freelancer and whatnot, I wonder whether the kind of assessment that you're talking about, assessment of successes, is going to be more and more a personalized a and… Self-directed work. Yeah, yeah. An outsourced kind of thing that yeah. you outsource to yourself yeah. with your laptop and the water bottle that you carry from place to place. Well, I think that that's where we're moving. Like, And, you know, as we continue on with the season, I wonder if we'll start exploring more opportunities to understand how does self-directed work work? Like… Where are you going to get those tools? God, the answer is it's different every day, right? Like that's yeah. the thing. When you are your own boss or your own assessor, uh, as I think more and more and more people are, uh, or people who even if they work for a big corporation work from home or work remotely and don't have sort of day-to-day or week-to-week check-ins, uh, yeah, I think it's sort of you finding yourself on a good day to set up a list of things you think are good for you to check with yourself, uh, trying not to split your personalities with the number of times I just said you in that sentence, and trying to figure out, yeah, who you want to be because there's no one boss or corporation or whatnot that's going to do it for you and say, here you go, you got the gold star this time. And speaking of evolving workplaces, we're going to get to uh, Lena Dunham's changing professional environment. That's up next after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, so Lenny Letter. Right. Lenny Letter is gone. Done. Yeah, so as of last week, Lenny Letter, which was, of course, the brainchild newsletter slash, uh, you know, journalism output, online magazine, that I think had aims at traditional book publishing as well, is no longer. No longer, and that was uh, Lena Dunham and Jenny Connors' joint, one of that, one of their joint projects together, and came out of the gate with, like, a pretty big win. Like, Jennifer Lawrence's equal pay letter was written for Lenny Letter, published at Lenny Letter. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, like, I mean, we can't sort of understate how, because it's Jennifer Lawrence and because what she was talking about, it went everywhere. For sure. They were pretty consistent about good essays and good reads throughout their lifespan, uh, which was a little over three years. I remember reading, like, a read a piece. Sure. On, oh, yeah. Am I imagining that? No, I think, yeah, yeah. I remember And it that. was about hockey. Yes. And um, it was great. There were really interesting perspectives and takes. They had that pitch at the beginning of every newsletter that came out saying, so-and-so talking about how this kind of cooking had her, you know, reassess her relationship to immigration and gender. And I'm like, yep. I'll, I'll read that. Or I remember one that was like, when I went to Sweden and was obsessed with all the porn. Uh, yeah, I will read that. Um, they had a good thing going, and now they don't. And they had a good thing going in a larger sense, right? This is not the first step of the Jenny-Lena separation. It's the final. Right. So that's what's really interesting. Um Lena Dunham was presented with Jenny Connor when Girls was starting up, essentially as a babysitter. This is really super common. If you're going to give a show to a first-time creator, you're going to give her somebody who can show them the ropes a little bit. And there are lots of stories of this going well or not so well, and often those people are kind of anonymous and fade off after a while. Mostly, that's the way it's supposed to be because the creator has found their legs. But for Lena and Jenny, they were introduced by Judd Apatow and essentially got business married. Like, they were really making things happen for a while there. It was Lena and Jenny, Jenny and Lena. Um, Had a good run on girls. A great run on girls. Um, Whatever you think about it personally, six seasons is a, you know, a successful run for sure. And immediately went into developing their next project, Camping, which premiered, I believe, last week and is... Uh, was a remake of a British format. Hasn't been super well received. Um, I haven't watched it yet. I have yet to see it. I've, yeah, I've read a few things. Hasn't been super well received. I don't know if there's like the hype around it that, you know, used to come with, like came with girls, for example. Right. No, I agree 100% with that. And part Part of of that might be like, is there Lena fatigue? Oh, there's extreme Lena fatigue, I think. And... You know, the other thing about Lena and Jenny as a duo is there was that awful situation last year where 
after one of the girls' writers was accused of sexually assaulting Aurora Perino, who was underage at the time, Lena or Lena and Jenny, depending on how you think about it, uh, wrote an essay that included the words, uh, this is one of those rare situations that is unfortunately falsely reported. And then had to take that back. And the reason I said, uh, depending on how you read it, is because in that statement, uh, the pronoun switches from we to I a lot. We meaning Jenny and I, and then I, I assume meaning Lena. Lena. Yeah. I guess. So look. And you... that ended up being retracted and they apologized or she apologized for that too. Yeah, she did. But it was still too little too late. Yes. You know, it was I loved my friend and so I wanted to help him yes. or protect him or whatever. As a result of that, some writers left Lenny Letter. Yeah, which I think makes sense. And Lenny Letter took a lot of hits. And then, you know, while Jenny Connor, I don't know what, probably went on vacation and prayed for silence, Lena Dunham went to Me Too meetups at the Emmys and tried to insert herself in pictures that maybe she wasn't a part of and all kinds of things. I mean, you know, whether you care about her relationship with her pets or whatever else, it's there's never long between a Lena Dunham situation. Right. Um, our interest, though, or my interest, is in talking about how you work with somebody and not work with them. Like, this is a professional breakup. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the professional breakup of Lena and Jenny was announced this summer uh, towards the end, if not the end, of the actual production of Camping's first season. Uh, I'm sure it was still in post. They probably are still in post. Uh, but Lenny Letter came later. So I wonder whether it is that there are different, you know, business silos and just dissolving each one, one at a time, uh, or whether, you know, probably Jenny Connor had a contract to finish out the first season of camping. Cause mm -hmm. it seems to me that the announcement of their dissolving their relationship and the first season wrapping was pretty close together. Um, yeah, it's interesting, right? You hit on something interesting, like when you were setting this up though, because when you talked about Jenny being assigned to Lena or Lena having someone assigned to her because she was a first-time creator and someone more experienced came along. Is it the same situation as Marty Noxon on Unreal? Yes, that is exactly the same situation. And that went south too. Well, yes, it did. And Marty Noxon has been public about saying that was a huge ego situation. So to be, to be clear, Marty was the Jenny in this situation? That's right. But also, she was the Jenny then. Marty Noxon is a much more household name in the past three years than she was when she was meeting on Unreal mm -hmm. and taking that job. It's kind of a thankless job is the point. Yeah. If you are going to be the silent babysitter of a young wonderkind, um, you're not going to get a whole lot of credit. And it's worth noting that we don't know most of the names of these people because they don't become yeah. big names in that way or they don't talk about taking those jobs. If you take that job as a showrunner, it's because you don't have your own show going on right now. And let's be honest, Jenny Connor was not a household name before girls, right? Right. So yes, it's a very similar situation to 
Marty Noxon. Uh, I believe that the first iteration of what became Insecure was Issa Rae working with Larry Wilmore. Mm -hmm. There was also a situation where she was working with somebody from Shondaland before now working with Prentice Penny. So uh, yeah, it, it happens, but there isn't usually such a public marriage. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not so much that Marty and Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, who was the creator of Unreal, went south too, as that most of these relationships are not long-term creative partnerships the way Lena and Jenny showed us that they were. Right. Just to hammer home the analogy, like this arranged marriage between Jenny and Lena became like true love for a while. Right. Totally. Yes. And then, whereas the other arranged marriages just went the way that arranged marriages probably are expected to go. Yeah. Which is yeah. fine. You know, the, the best is if you don't hear about it, mm -hmm. you know? Mara Brock Akeel is a showrunner I've mentioned a couple of times, and she talks about how in her first two seasons on Girlfriends, uh, they said to her, we're going to put somebody with you to show you the ropes. And she said, yeah, sure. And then at the end of those two seasons, they said, you know, it's going so well. Why don't we keep that person in that role? And she said, nope, you said you'd give me my show and give me my show. And that's not any bad blood or anything weird. It's just the way it's supposed to go that you know, your babysitter kind of grows up and goes to work for some other kids for a while. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not supposed to be a love match. So this happens. This has happened. Yeah. In the real world, it also happens. Yeah. You, oh, absolutely. You have a great idea with your friend. Mm -hmm. However it is that you were arranged, maybe you weren't arranged, but you go into business together. It doesn't work. It doesn't work out. You have to go your separate ways. Right. What are the tangible lessons we can take from this? Whew. I mean, that is, it's a tough one in general, and it's tougher still in this situation because, you know, you can say, oh, it's Lena Dunham, it's so unusual, but I don't think it's that unusual to have one partner be very vocal, very well-known or always doing something or always saying something, and the other person, if we're being honest probably sitting with a scotch going, God, could they just shut up? Mm -hmm. I am the last person to ever choose to shut my mouth when I should. Right. But I think that's probably the right move in this situation to let things get quiet and let the person who cannot shut up kind of burn themselves out. Discuss. Yeah, I think that if you are the Jenny Connor in that situation, 100%, I also think that that is the, that is the, that is the easy component analysis here. What if you're Lena Dunham? Yeah, no, it's interesting because this is something we've discussed on this podcast a number of times. What is your brand and how do you pivot after a project ends or after a misstep and who do you become? But there isn't usually somebody who has been by your side essentially as training wheels. Mm -hmm. Like, there's two parts to this, right? On the one hand, what does Lena do next? On the other hand, as much as people love to kind of mock her and I come down on 70% she does it to herself and says things that are absolutely preposterous and 30% people love to mock Lena Dunham. That's my personal standpoint, right? But you have to wonder, was Jenny Connor kind of the plug that was holding back way more and way worse in the meantime? Well, this, 
I go back to the first part of our discussion about self-directed work now. You know, when your greatest successes, let's say girls, for example, and camping, I mean, like you got a show produced on, on HBO, like that is no small thing. Right. When your greatest successes are um, in collaboration with somebody and now that somebody is no more, this is about – and that person – to go, follow your thesis, to follow your hypothesis, um, Jenny may have been the stopper, the plug, the whatnot. I don't know for sure. I'm just But wondering. if that is true, yeah. then the work for Lena Dunham now is self-directed. Yep. You're self-editing now. You are self-controlling. You are um, self-determining. Yeah. And I mean, if she was sitting here, she would say, oh, and that is a joy. I'm so happy to be able to do what I want and not to have to, you know, disagree creatively and whatever. And part of that is, sure, we all understand that, right? Like, we love working together, but sometimes we disagree about how to get at a thing. And it's easier and faster to do something yourself. And it's also lonelier and you don't get to collaborate with somebody. So that's all fine and good. I think she would say, oh, I'm already so excited about that. I have a bajillion projects lined up. I don't think, I guess the question will be whether she doesn't see her own blind spots. Um, You know, she seems to be, as you say, a fairly prolific writer. So hopefully she'll keep that up. And directing is the kind of thing where it's different every time, as Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. So I I don't know. I'll be interested in my gut says that she's going to go back to performing more. I feel like in the past couple of months she has put herself out there again as an actress in sort of undefinable ways and yeah. obviously she's, she's working on Tarantino's movie. Right. And yeah. she's had some health issues and that obviously would have taken her out of the mix for the while. I'm not trying to be unsympathetic about that, but that is a I think that's the smart move because Nobody can say as an actress, God, I wish you had Jenny Connor around. An actress is an actress, right? You are whatever you are. And nobody can say, wow, she was really better when she had that training wheels beside her because Jenny Connor was never on screen with her. Jenny Connor was never making those on screen choices for her. So uh, probably the smart move is to lean into a place where nobody can make comparisons, right? And yeah, if you were dissolving any kind of business partnership, the smart move is not to go and make the same business over again without your partner, but to try and do something as different as possible so that nobody's looking at the partner-shaped hole beside you. This is not a perfect comparison, but for some reason, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck popped into mind. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an inapt comparison. Like, Matt Damon stepped in it a few times recently. Sure. But for the most part, if you look at them as a whole, he's got it more together. Yeah. Or the good outweighs the bad, right? That's right. And Ben Affleck has a cycle of high, 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 and then he somehow manages to sabotage himself, which is kind of like an apt way of describing Lena Dunham. Well, and what's interesting about that too is that you're talking largely about Ben Affleck's personal failings. And professional. I mean, there have been, you know, Matt Damon doesn't have a Gili. <laughs> Gili 
and Jersey Girl. They were both happening at the same time. Or Daredevil too, right? Like, I mean, it's all that. No, he doesn't. But also Matt Damon and, you know, I'm not super intimate with his filmography, but I think he's tried to do other things as well. He has things where he is the the writer, the producer. In fairness to Ben Affleck, he also has some highs. He had Argo, oh which was a big, the, big the deal. highest high. But I, I point that out because it's a high not as an actor, but as a creative in right. all senses, right? If you think that the whole thing about them not deserving that screenplay Oscar is true, that very first one for Goodwill Hunting that was allegedly maybe written by somebody else and launched Mindy Kaling's career. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a long story. I will include the link in the show notes, but it's a good story. Um, I can see Ben Affleck having insecurity about that part of his creative persona as much as his acting roles and, uh, you know, yeah, bad superhero choices. So, even when he does have those successes, they're not as well-remembered or well-regarded as relatively clean teen Matt Damon's. And yeah, it's not hard to go, I wonder if that's because Ben Affleck has a giant fucking Phoenix tattoo that we've all seen. <laughs> and Matt Damon, you know, blithely jogs on the beach in Toronto when he's here and all the dog walkers are like, he's very lovely. <laughs> Not that they've broken up. I mean, they haven't had a professional split. In fact, they are still professional collaborators and have a few projects on the go together. But it just made me think about if I'm putting the focus right now on Lena Dunham, as you said, what is next? What does she lean into? It just reminded me of all the incessant talk about and the myriad chances that Ben Affleck gets to lean into new things and other things to be able to recover from whatever missteps he may have had collaboratively or not. It's a real leap of faith because I thought about a different partnership or several different partnerships. And what I was thinking about was uh, the partnership of Miley Cyrus and Disney or Selena Gomez and Disney. And that idea that Disney, which is known to be a really uh, restrictive and forceful molding hand in a young career, is also really strong and they can prop you up and they can get you to lots of places. And so to step out from behind that and be, I'm not a Disney actor anymore, is quite scary because you don't have those training wheels, but also you kind of wonder... Yeah, you don't have those training wheels. It's also kind of freeing, but you wonder, is it true? Was I really only successful because I was on the Disney Channel? And can I do this on my own? Um, and I think a few missteps in a situation like that are expected and fine. And usually people find their, they find their footing if they're going to. The difference is that they're not being sort of metaphorically fished out of the water all the time yeah. the way it seemed that Lena was during her partnership with Jenny Connor. I mean, I think it's safe to say probably Jenny Connor earned every cent that she made working with Lena and then some. Because if you think about the sort of missteps that she made in public, which were not necessarily creative missteps. I don't think a lot of people have a problem with girls the way they have a problem with, uh, yeah, Geely or Daredevil or whatever. Um, I think her problems often are interpersonal, and I think that would have been where Connor was doing a lot of the heavy lifting. 
So if we're taking that as an example of a professional relationship that has broken up, yeah, can we end on what takeaways we can take from a professional relationship that is quite strong and looks to be strong for the foreseeable future? Because what's popped into my mind was Shonda Rhimes and Betsy Beers. Right. Probably one of the most successful partnerships right now. Yeah. So I love that you bring that up. And I think that's a really great example because I think one of the things that is going to happen in a partnership is that you have to accept that you have different roles and different jobs. I have a friend who's in a very extremely successful uh, 20-some-odd-year business partnership. And when his company was really growing, he and his partner hired a business consultant who came in and said, you guys can't be doing all of the same things at all of the same time anymore. You need to kind of divide and conquer to use your time wisely, which makes sense, right? And one of the things about Shonda and Betsy is the company is called Shondaland. Mm-hmm. It's not called Shonda and Betsy Land. Yeah. And the person who gets invited to speak at all the keynotes and to write memoirs and whatnot is and gets Sh- the awards. And gets the awards is Shonda Rhimes. So that's not a secret to either Shonda or Betsy, but for that partnership to work, they both have to agree with that all the time, right? Like, you have to be cool with that if you're Betsy Beers and be like, it's never going to be called Betsy Land. I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere about what Betsy Land is, but you know, and I'm going to be rewarded personally or in my interactions with our staff and whatnot, but I'm not the exact same as her. It's that we complement each other. I, I think that's probably a mistake that people make when they get into partnerships, right? Is the idea is not to have somebody who's just like you and you want to do all this stuff together in the same way. The idea is to get into partnership with somebody where with your puzzle piece and theirs, you make a whole that you couldn't make on your own. And that's determined by what matters to each person. Like, I'm not sure that Betsy, like what she finds gratifying is the same as what Shonda finds gratifying. I don't disagree for a second, but if there's things that you couldn't have predicted would happen, you better be cool with the fact that that may go that way. Yep. You know, uh, I brought up Mindy Kaling, and I'll get into the whole story as we say in the show notes, but the play that she and her best friend wrote that kind of launched her career was written with her best friend, and you don't know her name. Mm -hmm. You know, like not everybody is going to become Mindy Kaling out of that and one person did. So you have to be okay with that kind of thing. I'm not suggesting there's bad blood, but it's not always going to happen for two people in equal measure all at the same time. Find your Betsy out there or find your Shonda. So something that happened in the last few days that made us both equally excited, like gaspy excited, like, (gasps) oh! Which, I'm not a gasper. You're a gasper. I think we <laughs> talked yeah, you about said that last week. I didn't know I was that much of a gasper. But I gasped too. I'm so glad. So, yeah, you sent a text. Uh, I think li- it was our friend Lorella who sent it. Somewhere late last yeah. week, uh, the tweet came out, the news came out that Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is being turned into a feature film. After years and years and years of her not wanting it to be. Well, there's a whole story, man. Like, 
I I know Judy Bloom is important to a lot of people. I definitely count myself in that measure, but I'm probably on the obsessive side. Often people will say, oh yeah, I love Judy Bloom. I love the Ramona books. And then when they see me boiling with rage, they'll be like, oh, was that Beverly Cleary? Oh yeah. It's not the same thing, people. I'm a an avowed student of Judy Bloom. I've read everything she's got. Uh, I highly recommend the book Letters to Judy, What Your Kids Wish They Could Tell You, which I think was published for only five minutes in 1998. But that's where I learned a lot of my Judy lore. Yeah, she's a really important figure. And for years and years and years, she didn't want any of her material to be sold uh, to film and TV. There were a couple of exceptions. Um, like, did you did you ever read the Fudge books? Were they a thing for you? Yeah, I read the Fudge books. I read Blubber. Like, I read a lot of, like, I read the heavy hits. Right. So the Fudge books, uh, there was a Fudge series for, I think, one season in 1995. Um, maybe that's what made Judy Bloom say she didn't want to have anything adapted mm-hmm. anymore. Who knows? Uh, and then a few years ago, I want to say like 2014, 2015, um, her son, Larry, adapted Tiger Eyes, which is, you know, one of her standalone novels that a lot of people really like. And I think it was fine. Uh, it starred Willa Holland. Uh, it was not any huge success, but I think it was a labor it was of love. fine, it was as you said. Yeah. In yeah. that tone. Yeah. Fine. It was, it was uh, that book was never one of the real touchstones for me anyway. Yeah. I know it was for some people, um, but it was clearly about, uh, so she wrote that book when she was living in New Mexico, where she moved for a guy, her children moved to New Mexico and they all, the guy didn't last, but they all formed a bond with New Mexico. So I think that's why he wanted to direct it. Whatever. Yeah. But yeah, as long as Judy Bloom has been on Twitter, which is surprisingly long and often, like a girl is not super young and is very, very chatty and talkative still. She's been like, nope, hasn't ever been right. has never been whatever. And then recently, I don't know, did you see when she, a few months ago, she yes. did actually say, hey, if I was going to adapt something, if it was time, what do you think it should be? Mm-hmm. And obviously, everybody and their brother said, Margaret. You, yes. Um, like for me, as you said, Tiger Eyes was like, you know, we all have our own personal stories. Stories, and moments, right? And yeah. For, I have a top three. Mine are Margaret, mm-hmm. Deanie, mm-hmm. and Blubber. Interesting. Interesting setup. Yeah. Okay. I would say all time, uh, uh, my Judy Blooms are going to be... Uh, oh, maybe Tales. Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing? Yeah. I mean, it's like, look, you have to like... No, I'm like... <laughs> I know. You have to rank them. <laughs> like, it's uh, it's... There's so many. I would say my top five, I don't know if I can do a three. My top five in no particular order mm-hmm. are, uh, then again, maybe I won't. Okay. Forever. Margaret. Summer Sisters. Hmm. And, oh God, it's so hard to choose. But if I'm going to go to like what I read the most over and over again, uh, I'd go... Probably just as long as we're together, which was a little bit more late breaking. Um, And I just want to, you know me, I'm a fairly, last week I guess on the podcast I said I was cynical at some point and our friend Dean texted me when he heard it and was like, you are not cynical. But uh, you like to call me contrary. You know this. I'm not terribly traditional or whatnot. When Judy Bloom came to Toronto 
not only did I go to each and every event that she threw, I cried in yes. public. Yes. I've In the time that you've known me, have I ever done that ever before? No. Never. Not for Beyonce. I enjoy it. I love her, but I didn't sob. I, I Judy Bloom was a visceral thing. So those are my top five. I can't believe you didn't list forever, especially with the rant that you started today about sex. <laughs> that book is literally all about sex. Um, okay. He names his dick, Elaine. <laughs> okay. So. Ask me what he names it, Elaine. What does he name the dick? Ralph. Great. Great. Margaret. Yes. Margaret is becoming a movie. Margaret is the one, though, that like yes. is on everybody's list, yes. I think, right? What did it mean for you? Well, as I wrote, you know, Margaret, number one, my immediate attachment to Margaret was only child. Mm, interesting Right? One. We yep. all take a thing. Right, right, right. So Margaret was an only child. I am an only child. Right. That immediately is like my in. Right. You don't have a sibling to talk to. Mm-hmm. Everything is confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, your body is changing. Your culture is weird to you. She's struggling with religion. She has all these questions. Well, that to me is what was most interesting, even though everybody thinks about the bodies and the periods and stuff. And I think I read it when I was eight and didn't know until that moment that I desperately wanted to get my period. And then I sure did for the next a million years. And it took a long time. But... Uh, what I remember most reading that book is I had never seen a situation faith-wise like that before that was like my family. Well, my mm-hmm. parents came from two different things, so they decided to toss it all out the window. I'd never seen that before. And that is the power of Judy Bloom to find a thing that is specific, again, with the specificity is universal, to find a thing that is specific, but obviously matters to a whole bunch yeah. of, of kids and make it feel really intimate. Well, it's right in the title. It's not, dear God, when am I getting my period? It's, are you there, God? Like, it's right there. Are you? Who are you? Where are you? Right. And if you've been living under a rock, Margaret's trying to decide if she's supposed to be Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or anything else. Um, I'd have to go back and see, like, which faiths were listed at that time. I don't think she tried to be, you know, a, a Hindu or anything, but... It was it was advanced for its time. Ultimately, though, the universality here, even in the specificity, is identity. Is identity for sure. And also, like, I think there's a lot of, I was going to say YA literature, kids' books, but I'm just, just going to say books in general. I think there are a lot of books, especially for young people, that have really great friends in them or they have really like wonderful families or whatnot. But in the Judy Bloom books and in Margaret in particular, the friends are not always nice to each other, but that's not the story of the book, mm-hmm. right? The parents are not always perfect people, but that's not the story of the book. That's just life. And I would say there are adult novels that still are painting a a rosier picture as though it's normal or that don't have people have real human flaws like, like Margaret did. And it's in that environment that she's trying to find her identity. That's what makes me really happy about it. So are you excited? I mean, I'm quite excited. And my usual caveats about I'm nervous and how are they going to do it? And is it going to be like in the intervening years, that book was written first in 1971. And in the intervening years, everybody talks about girls getting their period. Like that's now very, very public. I know that you've been talking a lot about it and campaigning. I know it's not as public as it should be, but 
it's not the taboo that it once was. It's kind of a staple of uh, tween television, let's say. So I hope that the movie is more than that. I hope it's about some of the things that we're talking about. And I always thought there was kind of like a spiritual sibling in um, in my so-called life, mm-hmm. which is also a show about, you know, a young woman or a young girl becoming a woman who's trying to be a person and nobody around her is perfect, but she has to figure it out anyway. And it's not a tragedy that nobody is perfect. So I hope that's where it goes. I hope so too. And I actually, I actually want periods to maybe have a bigger place than, than you had just said there, because what I realized lately, I think I would have agreed with you six months ago. Of course. I know. Yeah. Um, what I've learned in the last six months is that some of the reaction to all my period talk has still been like the way it you thought it used to be. Do you think it's been that way from women? Yeah. I Because, yeah, I interesting. Okay. Talk yeah, about and, that a little bit more. And even women of the generation that grew up reading, like would have been around – and for whom Margaret was written for, like who were 12 in 1971. Right, of course. You're, yeah. you're saying it's, it's not like it made them more no. able to talk about it or whatnot. That's right. Some of the responses I've seen on social media and out there have been like, why do you have to talk about it? Like, good for you. You don't have to advertise it. And it's not necessarily about advertising it. It's about getting to a place when we can talk to each other openly about it because all of us are collecting information still. The New York Times a while ago released a study about medical care and it proved that women do not get the same level and attention and seriousness of medical care than men do. Um, Oftentimes, when women present to the medical profession with issues, they are dismissed. You're too emotional. I'm not sure that this is what you think it is. Oh, there are great articles, and I say articles because there are dozens, about the way that women who are experiencing pain, specifically uh, uterine pain Mm -hmm. or uh, fibroids or cysts or whatever, are are spoken to when they're in the emergency room. Is it really that bad? Not really. And unfortunately, there are a lot of women who talk about having to go to the emergency room Mm -hmm. with their male partners, if applicable, because they're more likely to be taken seriously. Well, um, we had someone on the social a few months ago, Dr. Sheila Wajayasinghe. Hi, Sheila. And she put it this way. We have collectively and socially we have normalized woman's pain. Mm -hmm. So a period is, yes, just a period. An abnormal period is not normal. The kind of period that gives you that much pain is not normal. However, we've been taught that it is. Yes. Oh, yeah. You got your period? Yeah. Well, you should be collapsing. You should have headaches. You should be so uncomfortable that sometimes you don't go to work. So that became normalized over generations. That's, and that's not, that is actually not normal. No, it's true. But the other thing that's 
so fascinating about it. And this is one of the reasons I think why the book was so seminal then and now is that for anything to do with your body or your pain or your experience, you have a sample size of one. Mm -hmm. If I say, oh, I have a headache and you say I have a headache, those, we have no way of knowing whether those two feelings are the same feeling. We have no way of knowing whether my eight out of 10 on a pain scale is the same as yours. So part of, and that's one of the reasons why dismissing women's pain and dismissing women's experiences is able to happen is because there's no metric, right? You can see a broken bone and go, oh, that's a ninth degree break. Um, So part of what the book has done is talk about it and be... It's information collection, as I was saying. Like when we're talking about it, we are exchanging, this is what happens to me. What happens to you? Oh, that's interesting. Now we're a sample size of two. But the Let's other, get some more. Right. But the other thing that I think is so interesting about it is that uh, certainly Judy Bloom talked about, and a lot of the women who are now adults who wrote to her in that book, What Your Kids Wish They Could Tell You. Guys, it's a really good read. It's all these letters that have been sent to her over the years. Uh, was about how they were told it was a curse. It was a, a mm-hmm. horrible thing. It was a... a problem and a hassle. So to allow young girls to be excited about it, to Mm -hmm. look forward to it, also gets to change the narrative and in some way gets to push forward the agenda of, hey, let's find out more about my health. Let's not have it be, oh, you're in pain? Oh, well, nothing we can do. That's just how it is. Don't like disassociate it with those ideas that it's just something you have to go through and deal with. And that's what art can do. Like, this is what this story potentially and this movie hopefully will do. You go see the movie. Here's a character blown up to the size of like three houses that you're watching for two hours. And she's like, when is my period going to come? What is it like? Oh, period, 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 period. It becomes something we talk more and more about. Absolutely. But it also becomes more than a single issue, you talk a lot more about your period now than you did six months ago, but it's not all that defines you. And yet you're able to talk about it. You don't have to be like, oh yeah, I'm changing my role. I'm becoming a a women's health advocate or whatnot. You get to wrap that into the three-dimensional person that you are. And that's what Margaret, the story already is, which is really exciting. It gets to address all of those things, the spirituality and the only childness and the body shaming and changing and wanting and lusting, um, all magnified on those screens. And we're still bereft enough of three-dimensional young women that I'm excited on all those fronts. I'm excited too because I really loved The Edge of Seventeen. It was a good movie. More people, I I wish more people had seen it. If you haven't yet and you care about Margaret, that might be some homework. Go see it. It might reassure you. Um, it's uh, it's it's a it's a really it's 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 really well done, and it gives me some confidence because, of course, uh, Kelly Freeman Craig, yes. who made The Age of Seventeen, is the one who Judy Bloom has entrusted with. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, to write and direct. So expect more breathless updates. Uh, I will be stalking both Twitter feeds. It's like waiting for your period because you don't know when it's coming. (laughs) You don't know when it's coming. There's nothing you can do to speed it up. You just have to hope that it shows up someday. Probably like, listen, it's not going to be 
It's going to be probably a year because at least I don't think that she's even started to write it yet. Um, like she may have some ideas, but she hasn't turned in a first draft. No. And I might argue that if, you know, there's a line in this Slate article that I'm reading, which again is one of dozens about this, that says it's casting is going to be do or die. And if I were them, I might even do an initial talent search first Mm -hmm. to find the person who feels kind of like who you want Margaret Simon to be. Who might be ready in 18 months. Then go away and write an actual script tailored to that kind of person. Yeah. uh, And then come back. I like this. I like how you're you're giving them tips now. Well, Well, Kelly, if you're out there, this is what you should do. I'm hypothesizing. Uh, You know, we mentioned eighth grade last week, which… Uh, is still a movie that stayed with me for so long. And Bo Burnham has talked about how he could not have made that movie uh, without his star, Elsie, that she was the first person he saw, but Mm -hmm. then he saw like a hundred other girls and he was like, no, she's the one. Um, And once you know that, you start to write with that person in mind and it's a real gift in the right circumstance. So you're right. With Margaret, it has to be perfect. Yeah. And I love that you brought up eighth grade again, because as I think I said last week, it is available on demand right now. It is the best movie, in my opinion, of 2018. It will not get the awards. It will not get the nominations. But you guys, you have to see this movie. And it, everybody I know who has seen it is, is <gasps> just, yeah, feel, it feels like a bit of a cinematic warmth. at a time that you're in a place you're not expecting. All of it. Warmth, discomfort, lots of discomfort. discomfort. Horrible discomfort. Warmth, warmth, discomfort. It is a satisfying movie-going experience. Uh, And I think probably a lot of people don't expect that. So Primers for Margaret. I was going to say, it's a high bar. Yeah. Primers for Margaret. Eighth grade, the edge of 17. Do that while we wait for our period, Margaret. God, now I just want to go home and watch (laughs) that again. And on that note, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for causing me to dig out my five-pack of Judy Bloom box set. Um, <laughs> uh, but thank you for your notes and comments, especially since we've come back after our hiatus. It has been so great to hear from you guys about all the questions you have and the things you want to hear us talk about this season. Definitely leave reviews for us. I have decided I am not too proud to beg you for reviews. Leave your reviews for us where you find your podcasts. Um, Reviews help us and we would like to continue doing this. We hope if you would like to continue listening that you can help us out that way. It helps people find us and argue with us and get more stories about how to talk with you guys about your work. Check us out on all the usual socials, on Twitter, on Instagram. I want to say on Facebook, but I don't think either of us Facebooks at all. But, you know, if you're there, say hi for us. Um, And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.